Good morning, Exchange. Hey, didn't Whitney do a great job leading us this morning? Good gracious. For the record, I've only been asking for that to happen for the last 10 years of Exchange. For the record, yes. So um, really glad that she was able to do that for us this morning. It won't be the last time, that's for sure. Um, wanted to get you to turn to John chapter 2 today as we continue our thoughts and our um, study of the Gospel of John. Uh, this is getting interesting now. Jesus is coming on the scene and he's going to do some incredible things. He's going to perform his first miracle in our passage today. And this is uh, obviously a text that has been uh, studied and uh, feared by most Baptists. Uh, it's the one where Jesus turns the water into wine. And so it's one that uh, could, could bring a lot, great deal of controversy, uh, but I think also one that deals with and brings a great deal of comfort. And so that's where we're going to be today. We're going to read uh, two, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 12. So if you would read with me. John says this, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification uh, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and now take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. And this, the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. So if, if you've ever heard a, um, an interview with an Olympic athlete, particularly ones who start uh, races, who swim, who uh, compete in track and field, who, different, who uh, compete in various events where uh, the athletes line up and they will say, on your marks, right? You've heard it said uh, ever since you were a little kid, uh, it was kind of like you just felt this thing inside of you. It could be uh, 100 yards away and somebody would say the phrase when you were three, on your mark, and you'd be like, you know, you don't even know what you're doing or where you're going, what you're racing. It's just built into us that we are getting ready to go somewhere. We're getting ready to do something. An Olympic athlete will say that they train more for the start of the race than almost as much as they do the race in itself. They literally spend hours and days and reps after reps after reps when they hear the buzz, the jump off of the platform or the push off of the, the, the footrest. All of those things are deeply important how you start. And at this moment, Jesus is getting in the blocks, beginning his public ministry to literally come and save the world. And we see this, this moment where Jesus is, is even uh, grappling with, it, has the Father said, go? 
And so we'll see what happens here in the text. I think the text teaches us and shows us so much of a glimpse of Jesus and his friends. We're not really sure who the wedding was for, but someone close to Jesus, someone close to the family. Uh, Jesus, we see, was an honored guest allowed to bring his new uh, group of friends and his disciples. Uh, the way that Scripture writes it, he would have just really met uh, some of these guys just days before, and the wedding apparently is open to Jesus and his friends. Mary seems to have some type of relationship with the bride or the groom and carries maybe some type of responsibility at the wedding. Or at least Mary has this massive sympathy toward the hosts. So she comes to Jesus and brings him something that she knew only Jesus could help her with. At this moment, all is lost. There's no hope. There's, there's no store that they make a quick run to. If Jesus doesn't do something, the wedding feast is over. So notice what she does. She comes to him in verse 3, and it says this, that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It seems elementary, I think. And it seems that Mary didn't attempt to do anything on her own. Of course, we don't have the complete story, but what we do know is that it did not take her very long to bring her need to Jesus. It didn't take her long to bring her need to Jesus. Let me ask you, What's the over-under on your time? What's the average amount of time and frustration it takes you to bring your need to Jesus? When something happens during the day, during your week, during your life, during your circumstance, what's the amount of time or frustration or despair that it takes you before you finally unleash this need to Jesus and you've kindly come to him and say, Jesus, it seems as if I can't do anything about this. Do you totally exhaust yourself? Do you endure sleepless nights? Do you have a massive amount of anxiety before you even consider bringing it to Jesus? Or is Jesus literally the first thing and person you think about when a need comes into your life, when you're trying to disciple your children, when you're trying to reach your neighbor or your coworker, when circumstances come this way? This is an amazing story that brings us hope that we can literally bring anything to God. She's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Special attention, I would say, maybe a little bit, you know, but she brings wine to Jesus. Jesus, the party's going to be over. There's going to be a massive amount of dishonor brought to the family if you don't do something about this. Can you help? I mean, good gracious, if, if Mary feels comfortable bringing wine to Jesus, what can't we take to him? It seems as if Mary is teaching us this incredible lesson that literally everything is on the table for us to take to Jesus. All of our needs all of our wants, all of our desires, all of our concerns, all of our fears, all of our trouble, everything is on the table. He invites us to this, to present all of our requests to him. Do you lean on scripture's invitation to do this? To take him at his invitation to constantly bring the things that are on your mind, in your heart, surrounding who you are without ceasing. The, the scripture would, would push us towards this over and over again. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16, he says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. 
Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Watch, in Christ Jesus. Christ made it possible for us to pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean Scripture's not telling us here, it's not advocating for that we would literally abandon all of life's responsibilities and, and live like a hermit or a monk and just kneel before the Lord for our whole life. But that's the posture that he's asking our hearts to carry. That when we walk through life, when we see someone that we encounter, we think to ourselves and we pray, Lord, would you give me words to say to this person? Like right before we enter this conversation, well, Lord, would you help me say the things that I need to say and not say the things that I don't need to say? Before we engage with their children that we're trying to disciple, it's, it's, it's pushing us to say, Lord, you love my children more than I do. And so would you teach me to teach them? I mean, before we, we enter into any circumstance, Scripture is saying, pray without ceasing, have a mind of prayer. It's as if Jesus is walking with you through the Spirit that He places in us, that He gives us access to the Father all day long, all night long. I hate the moments that I wake up at 3 a.m., but it's in those moments that I pray. I often roll over and it's one, one of those moments where I wake up and I think, why, why does the Lord want me awake right now? And I just begin to pray. Whatever he lays on my, Lord, let's talk about this. Some, some mornings I wake up and I was like, dang it, I went back to sleep. We were having a good conversation. Other mornings I, I think to myself, I wish I had gone back to sleep. You know? But the great news is this, is he's, he's literally always there always there waiting for us, inviting us and saying, what's on your mind? What's in your heart? He's inviting us. Proverbs 3 says this, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, but on all your ways, acknowledge him. In everything, acknowledge him, ask him, trust him, and he will make your path straight. Philippians 4 says it this way, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, and pleading with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. I love this. It's not just scripture. It's not just sentences on a page. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, is demonstrating this in action for us when she takes the issue of wine at a wedding feast to Jesus. And here's the thing that I love about this passage. It doesn't just stop with um, the ask. But I believe it teaches us this, that we have direct access to the Father through Jesus and can ask anything in his name. Nothing's off the table. Nothing's off the table. Of course, if we were to ask for sinful desires, I think he would quickly correct that in our hearts. Right? We can bring him anything and he will move and transform. And most often, not just the circumstance, but our hearts and who we are, our minds, all the things about us. I fear that too often it's desperation, exhaustion, or dead ends that finally leads us to this place where requests are brought to uh, the Lord. But the truth is, is he invites you in long before those things take place. Long before you have sleep is nice. Long before you have nowhere else to turn. What if this became our mantra? As people, as followers of Jesus, of leaders in, in our family, that as soon as something pops up, comes to us, what if our first words were, oh no, what are we going to do? 
What if our first words were, let's take this to Jesus? Let's take it to Jesus. Everything, like wine at a dinner party, everything is on the table. Maybe you don't know how. And that's why I would, I would plug a ministry we have here, uh, our prayer ministry. That's why we have prayer partners waiting at the end of each sermon. We have, I don't know if you know this, we have men and women that have been trained in prayer that are literally waiting at the back of the auditorium to pray with you. When you don't know how to take things to Jesus, they will help you take things to Jesus. If you've never asked for prayer, it can be intimidating. Uh, but here's the good news is most weeks there are no snakes back there. All weeks there are no snakes back there. <laughs> you don't have to fear what's behind. It's just a place where we can take you to a semi-private place. You can sit across the room from someone and pray with them or have them pray for you. We believe that prayer is important. We believe that prayer changes things. And we believe that the, one of the things that the enemy desperately does not want you to do is pray. And so oftentimes, Jesse says it, Whitney has said it, Daniel has said it. Oftentimes you come into this place and it, maybe you had a week that was great. Whitney talked about this today. And, and you like feel like singing. It's, it's like in your bones, it's in your blood, it's throwing, flowing through your veins. There's other weeks we come in that we feel completely just pressed down and we don't feel like uttering one word. Have you been there? Have you been there? And that's why being in the church is so good for us because other people sing for us and to us when we cannot muster it up ourselves. And the same goes with prayer. There's been times in my life where it's really, really difficult to pray. And you know what the most comforting thing was in those moments? To go to someone and have them pray over me and for me. It's as if they're bringing my hand to the Father and saying, he can't say anything now, but let me, let me, let me come with him. This is a gift of the church. This is why every single week we say, bring something to us. Utilize the prayer partners in the back who are waiting and willing, wanting to pray with you. Maybe it's something that the Lord has pressed on your heart during the sermon. Maybe it's not. Maybe you came in heavy. Maybe he brought something to you that's totally different. You're not going to surprise them. You're not going to scare them. You're not going to go back there and say, I'd like prayer for that. And they say, whoa, that wasn't in the outline today. I'm not prepared. Right? No, these these. Prayer partners will grab you, they'll bring you in, and they'll say, let's pray together. This is important for the church to pray with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to bring it to Jesus together. I love what Jesus says to Mary, and it comes in some controversy, actually. He says to her in response to her in verse 4, what business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. So some have expressed a little bit of disappointment with Jesus in this phrase, in the way that he addresses his mother particularly. He, he talks to her in some way that, that we might deem disrespectful by calling her woman. It seems brash. It seems harsh uh, to some extent. And there's a few interesting things about how John writes in uh, his gospel and also uh, kind of Jewish culture and context here. 
First, it's important to understand that nowhere in John's gospel does he refer to Mary as Mary. He's always the mother of Jesus. She is always the mother of Jesus. Uh, And this was not odd in this context to refer to a woman as the the wife of someone, the daughter of someone, or uh, the mother of someone. It was, it was largely placed in, in her identity at that moment. And so John is doing this a little bit in his gospel. In the entirety of his gospel, she's never called name. In fact, I think he does something that's significant for us. She's always named as the mother of Jesus, quite possibly the most uh, intriguing and most identifying thing about Mary was being the mother of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. Oftentimes, Paul would write this about himself in his gospel. Uh, I, Paul, follower, slave to Jesus. It's as if he wants to cast away his name as quickly as possible and identify himself with the posture and the following of Jesus. John knew this about Mary. John understood that her greatest claim wasn't necessarily birthing Christ, although she did, that she would follow him as well. The second thing that's, that's pretty interesting here is that Jesus addresses his mother uh, by this, this word woman twice in the Gospel of John. Once here and once at the end. John chapter 19, verse 26. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by when Jesus was on the cross, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said, the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Same word, addressed the same person in two very different contexts. But this context would shed light on the first. And that Jesus is not in any way disregarding her, diminishing her, dismantling her request. In fact, his second use of this exact same word would push us to the belief that Jesus is using this as some type of term of endearment, of care. I like the phrase that needs more clarification probably is when Jesus says to her, what business do you have with me? And then he gives this important caveat, my hour has not yet come. It seems that Mary has has some type of responsibility at this wedding. Uh, at the very least, she has a, a very strong sympathy towards uh, the groom's family. Who would be responsible for the reception? Uh, it would be massively dishonoring to them uh, and to their name to run out of provisions. In fact, the bride's family at this moment was able to legally take the groom's family to court for not providing enough provisions for the reception. This was a massive, massive deal. It it wasn't just the fear of litigation, but it was honor, deep honor that was at stake here for their family. We're not sure how far into the reception this would have been either, but in the Jewish custom in this time period, a wedding feast and celebration could literally go on for days. So Mary is obviously concerned, probably in a panic, when she turns to Jesus. I think it's fun to think about and to wonder about, to speculate about what Mary had also seen Jesus do. What what made Mary come to Jesus in this moment? For 30 years, Jesus lived under her roof as a carpenter. 
We know this was Jesus' first public miracle, but what about the others? Had Jesus already demonstrated his ability to control nature in some way? Did he turn his vegetables into delicious desserts every night? Did Jesus hit a home run every time he went to bat? Maybe uh, Jesus always knew the card that you drew from the deck. It's hard to say what miracles he might have done to already prove to Mary that he could do this one. But I also find it interesting what miracle or miracles Jesus had not done. What's interesting from this text is it's very apparent by Mary's introduction, uh, the mother of Jesus, that, that he, she is being identified with Jesus, not with Joseph. At the cross, we would see this happening uh, just a few years later. We would see Jesus give his mother to another disciple, which would indicate to us very strongly that Joseph was no longer here. And I think about this often. I can only assume that there was a moment where Joseph stepped from this life into the next, and Jesus let him. He would have the power, of course, to raise the dead. He would do it many times in his own ministry. But there was a moment where Joseph, his father, would slip into eternity and Jesus would let him. We don't know if he was sick, aged, injured. We just are very certain that at this moment, Joseph has gone on. And certainly at the cross, Joseph has gone on. It teaches me two things, really, about Jesus. One is that he had a different view of this life and eternity than we do, possibly. And the second pushes us in this text is that Jesus was laser-focused on the will of the Father. He was laser-focused on the will of the Father. Meaning that if at that moment when Joseph, his earthly father, while his mother mourns his passing, while his brothers and sister mourns his passing. And Jesus most likely, like Lazarus, mourns his passing. He allows him, with the ability to heal him or raise him from the dead, he allows him to go to the next life. Why? Most likely because not my will be done, but yours. Most likely because the Father had not allowed him. He's submissive to the Father's will. And, and we know that Jesus would, would, would be laser-focused in this way. And it's this idea that Jesus is, is focused on uh, at this moment at the wedding, when he says, my, my hour has not yet come. The Father, I believe, had not yet released him to begin his public ministry, to show the world that God had come down to earth. The Father had a plan meticulously and sovereignly designed from before the foundations of the world, and Christ was waiting for the word go. Now, I think, obviously, it's interesting when we read these stories, we don't have the tone. We don't have facial expressions. We don't have a lot of the story. We're given a few short snippets of the conversation. But what we see is, is that, that Jesus is, is desperate to wait for the Father's 
uh, permission. We see this demonstrated in other passages as well as Galatians. Even from the foundations of the world, this plan would be unfolded. And it, and it seems as if, not seems as if, Scripture would teach us that it was at a very, very specific time. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, But when the fullness of time came, when the perfect time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were put under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons and daughters. Scripture says that there was a moment that God was waiting for before the foundations of the world were laid to put his plan in place. There was a moment. Romans 5, verse 6 says it this way, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scripture is teaching us that there was literally a moment in time where God is saying, on your mark, get set, go. And so Jesus is waiting for this moment when he says, my hour has not yet come. The Father had, I believe, has not released him to begin his public ministry, to show the world that God had come down to earth. The Father had a plan meticulously and sovereignly designed from before the foundations of the earth. I think Jesus' phrase that he uses also is, is this Semitic idiom as well. It's, it's used often uh, in Scripture in different passages, and it usually creates some distance between uh, two parties. It, it could also sound like this. What is that to me and to you? It's as if Jesus is saying, what business do you have with this? Is this what, why is Maybe a modern interpretation of this would be when they would come to Jesus and say they have no wine. Uh, Jesus might say, uh, sounds like they have a problem. It sounds like that's a personal issue. Jesus is laser focused. He says, like, I'm not going to do anything apart from the Father's will, even if my own mother asks me. Do you see the weight here? I mean, Mary is coming to Jesus weighted by the guilt and the shame of someone very close to her would likely face if Jesus does nothing. And still, Jesus' first response is, listen, unless the Father gives permission, my hour's not yet come. I, I don't know what happened between Jesus' words and Mary's next instructions, but I do know this. Mary did not sway Jesus. Mary did not persuade him. Pretty please. We don't have any of those moments in the text. I think it was more like this. When Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come, I think the Father spoke to Christ and said, You just see this total, you don't see it in the words, but you see this shift. In this one place, in this one passage, Jesus says, that what, it sounds like that's a personal problem. My, my hour has not yet come. And then somehow, way, Mary sees uh, this, this shift in Jesus, whatever that was, where he, she looks and says, oh, do whatever he says. She knows that there's this moment that he is going to work and he is going to do something. And that's what happens. She looks at the servants, verse 5, and his mother said to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. I'm not sure that we really need to move on from these words. 
that Mary spoke thousands of years ago. I'm not sure that any greater instructions could ever be given. Whatever he tells you, do it. You know, I think it is true that with Jesus we can ask anything. But I think Mary's instructions would teach us one point further. That with Jesus we can ask anything, but we must yield everything. With Jesus we can ask anything, but we must yield everything. Whatever he says, do it. I'll ask for what I want, what I believe that I need, but I'll yield to what Jesus knows is best and right. I'll recognize that Jesus knows what's best and right in an exact proportion of what's needed. I think this is true in the most exciting places of our life and true in the most vulnerable. I can't imagine that the servants uh, felt like anything but fools as they filled these water pots. What are we doing? Total waste of time. You, you can't add anything to water to make wine. Whatever he says, do it. But also showing up empty-handed at the rest of the feast, they would feel like fools. So I'm sure they expected uh, nothing to happen, but they were at least going to obey instructions. I wonder what would have happened, though, if two things hadn't have happened. What if Mary didn't ask or the servants didn't obey? I believe that we would not be reading this story this morning. Jesus could have found another way to announce his power over all of creation. And still he does it in a way that corresponds and intersects with Mary's request and the servant's obedience. Maybe Jesus would have still come through. Maybe he would have still displayed his power here. We don't know. What we know is that he used the request of Mary's obedience and the obedience of the servants to do an incredible thing. And I'll just say this. You're always in a safe place when you're walking in obedience to Jesus. Always. So there, there's been places in my life that's been scary to do this. Places that were exciting, places that were inconvenient. Have you ever had this, the spirit kind of poke his finger in your chest and give you some instructions that you felt were like too hard for you to say, yes, Lord? What about confession? Have you ever had that? Where the Lord's asking you to confess and you're like, oh man, that's a scary place. You might end up hurting someone to ask for forgiveness, to rip open a wound. But when Jesus speaks, he always is working and he's always sure. Listen, Jesus wasn't surprised when the water turned into wine and he won't be surprised when your confession leads to freedom. Have you ever had the spirit poke his finger in your chest and, and say for you to speak about Jesus? 
to someone that you should have shared his name with days or months or years ago, someone who you, you have blown your testimony with that you think that you've spouted off or spoken in anger, and now you have to go back and the Spirit's asking you to correct that or to say something. You're like, whoa, if, if, Lord, you, have, you, you probably don't remember. Don't you remember what I said just months before? Listen, Jesus was not surprised when the water turned into wine, and he will not be surprised when your obedience leads to someone to lean into him. Have you ever had the Spirit poke his finger in your chest and say, move this way, and all you can see is the unknown. All you can feel is fear. Listen, Jesus was not surprised when the water was turned into wine, and he will not be surprised when he leads you safely to the other side of whatever is in your life at this moment. It won't surprise him because when he says obey, he knows what he's doing. He understands what's at stake. He knows the anxiousness in your heart. He knows all of the weight. When you think to yourself and people speak up into your situation and you're like, and they give you advice and you're like, oh yeah, right. Okay. You don't understand. You obviously have no idea. There's one person on the face of the planet who we can never say that to. It's Jesus. Scripture tells us that he literally came so that he would uh, be tempted in every single way. So when you're scared to take your sin to Jesus, you know what he says? I understand. That though tempted without sin, Scripture says that Jesus was literally tempted in ways that we are tempted and so when we take our sin to him, he doesn't say, oh man, you loser. He says, I understand. Come to me and you'll find rest. Come to me and I'll bring you freedom. Come to me and you won't be a slave to that anymore. Over and over and over again, Jesus promises to lead us safely home. Trust him. Maybe that's what you need prayer for today. Maybe you don't want to share what's exactly on your heart. Maybe it's just a feeling that you need to go back and pray. And then, uh, and maybe that's obedience today. Maybe today that's obedience. And what you go back and you look at someone in the eye and say, would you just pray for me that I can trust Jesus to lead me safely in a circumstance? That's all I need today. Maybe today is literally just turning and walking that way and asking for prayer. Maybe that obedience is just asking and telling someone who prays with you, I need help to trust Jesus this week. Watch what will happen. Watch what will happen when you take the first step of obedience, knowing and trusting that Jesus will not disappoint you. Do you know this? Scripture promises this, actually, that you will not be disappointed when you follow and obey Jesus. You won't be. The scripture, it's over just a couple of samplings. Romans 10, verse 11 says, Scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah 49, 23 says it this way, And you will know that I'm the Lord, and those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. He's saying this listen, if I will not embarrass you, I will not shame you, I will not disappoint you when you obey me you will always be better off. 
always. So we see this miracle in verse 6 begin to kind of unfold. And there were six water pots standing for there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing two uh, or three measures each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots. And so they filled them up with uh, the brim. And he said, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And then when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the guests are drunk, uh, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I mean, can you imagine the response here? Uh, for reference, each of these pots would have been 20 to 30 gallons. So the most uh, conservative figure uh, on that at 20 gallons each, uh, this would equal about 515 bottles of current, our current bottle of wine. It's a lot. And it was fantastic in quality. As scripture actually mentions, whoa, this is better than anything we've ever tasted. For most, they would have not known what had happened. But in fact, Scripture tells us, and the text specifically says, as if John is trying to make a point that the head waiter didn't even know where the wine had come from. That wasn't the mission. It doesn't seem like the groom knew or anyone else knew for that matter. John lets us in on a little secret. Who Jesus is after. He says this in verse 11, at the beginning of Jesus' signs in Canaan of Galilee, and he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It, it, it's as if John is letting us in on, on the purpose of this miracle. Though his first public one, Jesus is bringing in the disciples, and he's saying to them, watch and see. Come and see. Wait and see. It says that he revealed his glory. The, the Greek word here is, is a, a word that means sp splendor, brightness, radiance. It, it's as if Jesus is showing them who he really is. It's as if he is giving them a glimpse of his deity, his power as creator, absolute authority and dominance over all of creation. And he's showing it specifically to his disciples. He was gathering them in, bringing them in, teaching them who he really is. And I love what John says, and his disciples believed. It's their response to seeing him, to seeing his power, to watching him, to their response in obeying was belief. But it's an interesting question, I think, and an interesting thing for us to really contemplate is what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? James, the brother of Jesus, who was actually not a believer until after the resurrection. Think about that. I mean, if you grew up with um, difficult siblings, think about growing up as, with God as your brother. It's, it's, it's just a lose-lose situation, right? I mean, if you beat him up, you literally just abused God, right? Everything in your life, Jesus does better, right? I mean, it, it, it probably takes a minute for you to come around, but when you do, 
if your brother, I'll just say this, if anyone's brother in here says, you know what, my brother is God, you probably should listen because there's zero chance a sibling is going to make that uh, accusation or that proclamation and it not be true, right? So James, after the resurrection, he becomes a believer. He begins to follow Christ as the Messiah and he writes on belief. He talks about what it means to believe and he says this in James chapter 2, Verse 14, he says this, What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone has faith, they say they have faith, but they have no works? Can that faith save him or that belief save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, as dead, being by, say, by itself. But someone may say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by the works. You believe that God is one, he says. You believe that God is one. You believe. And listen to what he says. You do well. But the demons also believe. How interesting that the demons actually share our belief in God. James writes sarcastically, I think. There's a tone here. He goes, oh, you believe, you believe in God. Good, 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 good. There's demons that believe. See, James says that there's a belief that actually changes us. It's a deep-seated belief that says, I believe in Jesus so much so that I'm willing to yield everything. It says, I, I will literally shape my life around this. It's so strong of a belief. See, Jesus never asks, asks us to just believe that he created things. He never just asked us to believe that he was a good person, a good teacher, a good prophet. He literally asked us to believe that he himself is God in flesh. And if that's true, then everything belongs to him. When we see him, we're forced to say, do we believe him? According to James, the brother of Jesus, to believe means that Jesus becomes the hinge pin of our lives. Everything rests on who he is. The words that he says, he is not an add-on. He is not an obligation. He is and has to be everything. So we understand and acknowledge that he's worthy of every single element of our lives. Nothing is withheld. I found a very interesting um, survey uh, that just actually came out where it says uh, it was done by Vivint, uh, the company, and it says that most Americans, many Americans, almost half actually, uh, believe that their home is inhabited by someone or something that is not a living being. This is crazy to me. And they stay there. They stay there. Almost half of Americans, if this is you, please come find me after the service. Believe their house is haunted and they stay there. You 
You know, I wonder if their belief is, is similar to ours. We say, yeah, yeah, I believe something's there. But it's not going to change anything about my life. I kind of wonder what's more crazy, to be honest, to believe that your house is haunted and stay or believe that Jesus is God and it not affect your life at all. We look at one and we say, that's absurd. And we look at the other and say, oh, that's pretty normal. In exchange, that's what I don't want for us. I want to look at Jesus as those who looked at Jesus at this wedding and say, oh man, he deserves all of my attention, all of my obedience, everything that I am. That's who we need to be. That's who asks, Jesus asks us to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful that in our disobedience, you have not abandoned us. When we're unfaithful, you have proven yourself to be faithful. And still in our disobedience, in our wandering, you still whisper, you still chase us down, and you still ask and invite us into a relationship with you, Jesus. And so there's some today that, that literally just need to obey, to pray, to ask for faith and the ability to trust. And so, Jesus, I pray that you give that to them. I pray that even asking for prayer from one of our prayer partners would be an act of courage and obedience, that they would go back and, and just receive prayer and understand what it's like to be prayed for and prayed over. Lord, Lord for some, you have put in their heart and in their mind the conversation that they desperately need to have with someone. Ask for forgiveness. Reconcile a relationship.